From Wyoming to Maine, Mississippi to Washington, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, President Biden's plan for so-called student loan forgiveness has gotten bogged down in the courts. Phil Kirpin from American Commitment is here to give us an update. Voters in Georgia are casting ballots in a runoff election that will determine which party wins the lone remaining U.S. Senate race. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Has the Biden administration really slowed spending and cut the federal budget deficit? Eric Bame of Reason Magazine gets the facts from Jonathan Bidlack of the R Street Institute. And is it possible for a Republican presidential nominee to get over 50% of the nationwide vote? On this week's American Radio Journal Commentary, Dr. Paul Kangor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College says, winning a majority of votes is the historic norm. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. It was a pre-election ploy to buy votes, and now the courts have put at least a temporary halt to President Biden's plan to forgive a portion of college student loans. Phil Kirpin is president of American Commitment. He is here now to update us on the legal action. Phil, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Phil, President Biden a number of months ago proposed a so-called student loan forgiveness program. Tell us what the president was proposing, and it's all gotten bogged down here in the courts. Where does it stand? Yeah, what President Biden announced was that uh, he was going to direct the Secretary of Education to discharge ten to twenty thousand dollars of uh, student loan debt for forty million people. Essentially, everyone with a student loan that made less than one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars single or two hundred fifty thousand dollars married filing jointly in either of the last two years would be able to reduce their loan balance $10,000, or if they got a uh, Pell Grant, $20,000. And uh, this CBO tallies this up to a little north of $400 billion uh, that would be transferred from those student loan borrowers to taxpayers that would essentially uh, be covered by the U.S. Treasury, which unless they raise taxes, which they seldom do, would just be printed money, would be additional deficit and monetized by the Federal Reserve, a little extra pulse of inflation on top of what we're already dealing with. That program, he was not asking Congress to pass it as a law, which would be the proper way to do it. Instead, he suggested that this could be done by using a post-9-11 law called the HEROES Act that allows the Secretary of Education to modify student loans for people who are harmed by a national emergency. And of course, at the time, we were thinking of a terrorist attack or uh, somebody who was reserved called up to active duty to go fight in the war on terror, and maybe something related to that situation set them behind on their loan payments, and the Secretary could essentially make them whole for that uh, was what that law was designed to do. Well, Biden said, well, COVID's a national emergency. It kind of hurt everyone economically, so I'm just going to whack ten to $20,000 off every loan balance. That's definitely not what that law says. And we also now have this major questions doctrine from the Supreme Court in West Virginia versus EPA, where they said to do something on a major issue, you have to have a clear direction from Congress. You can't just try to twist an old law towards a new purpose. And so it's, a, I think, a very tough sell in the courts. And in fact, we've now had two, had two courts block this. Uh, one is a 
the district court in the Northern District of Texas has actually vacated the order. And uh, we've got one out of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in St. Louis, which is, you know, sort of the the middle level federal court. They've granted an injunction uh, against it nationally. And that is the case that's kind of pending at the Supreme Court right now. The uh, Biden administration has applied for the injunction to be lifted. And so that's kind of the procedural way that it's reached the Supreme Court. That goes to Justice Kavanaugh. It went, I think, early last week. He's asked for briefing in that case. Uh, The reply brief from the Biden administration went in yesterday. There have been some pretty good amicus briefs in there as well. And so we're waiting now on the Supreme Court to do basically one of three things. Uh, Either Kavanaugh will say, we're not going to take the case. We'll leave it alone. And the injunction stays in place. The case proceeds at the Eighth Circuit. Or he might refer it to the full court, which could either do that or they could lift the injunction and then Biden could press send and give all that $400 billion out. Or, and this might be the most likely of the outcomes, the Supreme Court could say, you know what, we're not going to wait. We're going to take the case now and they could schedule oral argument and then, you know, they could make the final decision on it. So we're waiting to see which way they go and what they, they decide to do. But we could see something from them any day now because all the briefing is in. As this track continues, there's also a lame duck Congress that is going to be in session here over the next couple of weeks. Has there been any chatter, Phil, about Congress maybe taking this issue up? I haven't seen anything. I don't think they've got the votes. Look, uh, even with, the, even with the, the Democratic House, they didn't have the votes to do this the proper way or they would have done it. There have got to be at least a few senators on the Democratic side that are skittish about the idea of having the 290 million Americans that don't have student loans picking up the tab for the 40 million Americans who do. And so I think if the president could have done this the legitimate way, passing a law, he would have. And I don't think that's changed. So I don't expect to see anything on this in the lame duck session. Talk a little bit more, if you will, about the economic impact of this. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago a little more spurt to inflation and the fact that this will be printed or made up money. Are they really adding a lot of fuel to that inflationary fire? Depending on whether you go by the CBO estimate or some of the private estimates, we're talking about something on the range of $400 billion to a $1 trillion. Now, if that money that was expected to be paid back by student loan borrowers is not paid back to the Treasury, then you create a hole in the federal government's finances of that much money. It's not a magic trick. It's not like you make the loan balances disappear and that's it. That's going to be paid one way or another. Uh, I think it was Milton Friedman who said every loan gets paid back, either by the borrower or the lender. And in this case, the lender is us, the taxpayers, the U.S. Treasury, which, by the way, when they had the federal government take over student lending in 2010, they said it was going to make money for taxpayers. They said, oh, the banks are making too much interest. We're going to make all this money for taxpayers. And of course, we've taken huge losses. It hasn't made money at all. And they want to take even larger losses intentionally. But, you know, you're talking about something on the order of $400 billion to a $1 trillion. I don't think they're going to pay for it, as I said, by raising taxes, which means it's going to be additional debt on top of all the debt that we already have. And, you know, over the last couple of years, most of the federal debt has not been bought by real purchasers. It's been bought by the Federal Reserve. And assuming that continues, the Federal Reserve buys that debt. It essentially increases the amount of money that there is, and that drives up the price of everything. And I, you know, I, we've seen the really bad inflation has come down a bit because the government hasn't been spending trillions on trillions on trillions like they were during COVID. But they did go on a little another spending spree with the Inflation Reduction Act. And if this thing goes through, it's a, it'll be another impulse, another upward impulse in spending uh, that will likely be monetized and create more upward pressure on prices. 
So if at the end of the day the courts put a halt to this, does that mean the whole idea is then dead? Well, I would hope so. At least the idea of doing it by presidential directive rather than negotiating legislation in Congress. He might have some other law that he's going to pull off a shelf and attempt it again another way, and it'll be litigated again. Uh, but what I would really like to see on this issue is Congress to take it up and uh, I, and focus, I think, on the real fundamental problem we have, which is the university administrators have every incentive in the world to jack tuition to the moon and take advantage of every dollar of student loans that students can possibly borrow because they're not going to be on the hook if those loans go bad. And uh, until we fix that incentive problem, I just don't don't think we're going to really get at the root of this whole issue. And so you know, I, I would like to see Republicans in Congress and the House say, look, we're willing to do a deal on, on student loans, but the deal has got to be something like we're going to make bankruptcy discharge easier for people who are in dire straits, but the school is going to be on the hook for a significant portion of those funds so that their incentive is aligned so they're not turning out dropouts or graduates that can't make enough income to pay back the loans. We have been talking with Phil Kirpin. Phil is president of American Commitment. And Phil, tell us a little bit about American Commitment. Also, where can folks go to learn more? We're a national free market advocacy group. We work really on all of the fiscal, economic, and regulatory issues. And we try to focus on the ones uh, that are on the margin, where a little bit more citizen education and engagement uh, can make the difference and tip the outcome in a more free market direction. And all our stuff is on the website, AmericanCommitment.org. Phil Kirpin of American Commitment. Phil, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Loman. Have a good one. At the offices of the Club for Growth, Scott Parkinson, keeping an eye not only on political developments, but also major developments in the nation's capital. Good to have you here, Scott. Great to be back, Loman. Thanks. Of course, the big political news uh, this week is the fact that we have a runoff in Georgia. This is the last U.S. Senate seat to be decided Please tell us what's at play in that runoff. When is it and what is the dynamic? This is down there once again in Georgia. And stop me if you've heard this before, but obviously Georgia is going to determine the balance of the United States Senate insofar that this last Congress we had a 50-50 Senate after Kelly Leffler and David Perdue lost their elections to Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. But now we've got Warnock running for the full six-year term, and he's running against Herschel Walker, the former Heisman winner from the University of Georgia, NFL player, MMA fighter, and everybody's favorite chicken farmer. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, Herschel Walker's a lot more than all of that. He's, he's obviously a, an entrepreneur and, and a political leader for a lot of the political right down there in Georgia. Incredibly important and close race. What happens if we lose, right? Then we're in a 49-51 Senate, and there's no reason for Kamala Harris to ever come and do a tiebreaker unless they actually lose Democrat senators on a, on a major vote. It also, when you have a 50-50 Senate, it determines the committee ratios. So how the Democrats can expedite legislation would certainly be changed if they have a firm majority at 51-49. We do think this is going to be a very, very close race. Democrats are outspending Mr. Walker right now. And as we've seen, the general election with Brian Kemp winning his re-election but not being on the ballot now. Uh, there needs to be some concerns about voter enthusiasm and making sure that folks get out. It's always lower turnout for a runoff election than a general election. But I think when the people of Georgia understand this isn't just about 
the next two years in a 49-51 Senate or 50-50 Senate. This is a six-year term for a United States senator, and obviously Republicans are holding out hope that in 2024 we'll have a good year because there are a lot more Democrat seats in play than Republican seats. Meanwhile, back under the Capitol Dome, we do have Congress somewhat coming together here, and which is rare. There's been the threat of a nationwide rail strike. Of course, that would be devastating to the economy. What action did the Congress take this past week, Scott? Yeah, well, it started out with uh, four leaders having a meeting with President Biden in the White House. So Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and Kevin McCarthy went on over there and they talked about the rail strike agreement. President Biden asked them to expedite legislation. And in short, this is, it's sort of a complicated thing, but eight out of 12 of the rail companies had come to effectively an agreement to avoid a strike. And the four outstanding companies are, are labor union led. And so Congress can intervene and force the agreement to proceed based on previous statute and rail law. That being said, you know, I think the agreement is very much rushed. It did rush through the House of Representatives the next day, and I think we need to actually caution. Ronald Reagan had those famous nine words, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. We know that when big government gets involved, it can actually have the uh, opposite effect that you're intending and unintended consequences. So what we need to do with with this rail situation is, is see how it proceeds in the United States Senate. And I do understand the severe economic consequences that the rail industry provides to to the U.S. economy, and especially heading into the Christmas season, nobody wants to see that strike happen. But whether or not the federal government intervenes and is the hammer to to drive this deal through is is a bigger question. In addition to that, Congress came back following the Thanksgiving recess and will be in session for three straight weeks leading up to the Christmas holidays. The federal government funding expires on December 16th. You've already got even a Republican senator, Roy Blunt, who's one of those lame duck senators. He's going to be replaced by Eric Schmidt in the United States Senate. But Roy Blunt's out there saying, well, we need one more week. We need to push this to December 23rd. Well, we know what happens in those instances. That's the political climate that leads to these Christmas wish lists that are loaded up with extra spending and boondoggles and favors for the K Street lobbyists as these unaccountable members of Congress in lame duck session seek the exit door and uh, maybe a, a higher paying opportunity down on K Street or with another association. Meanwhile, we have something we haven't seen in a while that took place this past week. The President of the United States hosted a state dinner who was the recipient of that rather grand event? President Macron was here from, from France. It was the first state dinner for the Biden administration. And what's coincidental is this was also the, the same leader that President Trump hosted in 2017. The relationship did sour over policy differences related to the Paris Climate Accord and also the Iran nuclear deal. That being said, 
The French aren't too happy right now with the United States either, because as as the U.S. tries to meet these, my view, sort of uh, fake climate goals, we did so with crony capitalism and the Inflation Reduction Act and subsidizing the renewable fuel industry and uh, the um, sustainable vehicle fleet. And so the, the French actually thinks that violated the World Trade Organization agreements and it has adverse effects on the French economy and other economies throughout the world. So it'll be interesting to see how those differences are resolved. And obviously, the the French and U.S. relationship is an important one going forward. We have been talking with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of our nation's capital. If anybody wants to check us out and learn about why we care on economic freedom, liberty, and opportunity, and the pro-growth ideas that we've got, the website is clubforgrowth.org. We've got over 500,000 members from all 50 states, and you, our listeners, can actually become a member for free. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thanks again for being here. All right. Thank you. President Biden claims he has slowed the rate of federal deficit spending. But has he? Eric Baim of Reason Magazine learns more from Jonathan Bidlack of the R Street Institute. President Joe Biden has overseen a staggering increase in the deficit and the national debt, which recently hit $31 trillion. That's just a few months after we surpassed the $30 trillion mark. Those trillions just going by faster and faster these days. Uh, Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. Sharpen your pencils out there, boys and girls, because we are going to math class today with my guest, Jonathan Bidlack. He's the director of the governance program at the R Street Institute, and we welcome him back to the show today. Hey, John, thanks for taking some time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, look, there's a lot of talk out there from the, the White House about how the deficit has gone down under President Joe Biden's watch. Uh, is this completely false or just mostly false? Well, I mean, it, it's true in the sense that if I charge a new new BMW on my credit card one month and then the next month I don't, my balance, I suppose, might go down too, right? Or my new charges anyway might go down. But that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we're in better a better fiscal shape because of anything that the president has done. So it's a little bit, I think, of a uh, leading leading us to a conclusion that doesn't actually reflect the underlying reality. Put some numbers on that for me, if you will, uh, just how much has spending gone up under uh, President Biden and, and like compared to what Trump did? Maybe it's worth talking a little bit about that timeline. So if you, if you look back at the Trump presidency, I mean, first of all, Trump was increasing spending a lot even before COVID hit. I mean, there were pieces written about this, right, increasing the, the Pentagon's budget, for example, pretty significantly. That obviously went on steroids when, when COVID came, right? And, and Trump, in his last two years of his, of his presidency, spent the most during those two years that that any president that I know of has on the order of about $3.3 trillion in in new spending was kicked off uh, during those those, those two years. Biden is now above that. He has now, uh, thanks to, you know, obviously his own COVID spending, but also spending on a whole host of other things, the infrastructure package, the the CHIPS Act, the PACT Act, right? A lot of these other things have also added up to the tab. And while that spending won't occur immediately, again, it's kicking in motion a lot of a lot of spending, not just today, but also in the future as well, which is obviously not the greatest when you're in a you know a high inflation environment. And then the last point I'll make here is that 
I think the thing that's been very pernicious about the Biden administration's uh, uh, spending policies is that it's not just that he's been signing laws that have been approved by Congress that would spend a lot. All presidents do that. But there's also that element of, of executive actions to, to take actions that would actually go and have significant budgetary implications. And so, you know, there are a lot of various things. The CBO had a, a report back in June that, that found that a handful of the executive actions that they looked at had a price tag of over $500 billion. And that doesn't even include a lot of the student loan things that we've talked about recently. The most recent pause is another $40, $40 billion. And then, uh, and then, you know, the, the forgiveness, right, is in the hundreds of hundreds of billions as well. So, Beyond that 3.37 trillion that he's that he signed, you've also got over a trillion dollars in uh, executive actions that have an impact on the federal budget. So it really is quite unprecedented, both in terms of the actual dollar amount, but also the way in which it's happened. We're talking with Jonathan Bidlack. He's the director of the governance program at the R Street Institute, and uh, he's also the author of a piece you can find right now at Reason.com. Biden's spending spree is unprecedented. Jonathan, uh, there was uh, an interesting point that you make in this piece looking back at uh, actually at the Obama administration, which, of course, the first couple of years there, very similar to to what Biden has done. Uh, We had a, a massive stimulus program to deal with a major national emergency, and then we had sort of larger spending backed by both the president and a, and a Democratic Congress. When Republicans took over Congress in that first uh, Obama midterm, it's not that the deficit situation really got got a whole lot better after that. I mean, it didn't it didn't get good, objectively good after that, but it, it did get a lot better. Like there were some uh, some actual concrete steps taken to bring down spending or to limit the growth of future spending. Any optimism that something like that will happen this time around or, or are Republicans, have they completely lost that thread? It's a great question. I think you know that's one of those things that just remains to be seen. I mean, my my worry is that the Overton window has shifted to some degree, where not only Democrats are are not really caring about being responsible, but a lot of Republicans aren't either because they they're more interested in sort of engaging in these culture war fights than they are being you know sort of good stewards of uh, of the the nation's finances. I mean, if you look at that that infrastructure package as one example, it basically spends two hundred billion dollars more than Obama's stimulus did. And of course, that stimulus package together with TARP and some of the other things by by both Bush and Obama kicked off the Tea Party wave and sort of a newfound concern over the rise in spending and the rise of the national debt. This time around, that infrastructure package is talked about as compromised bipartisan legislation, and no one really seemed to have much of a problem at all with its with its price tag. So maybe that changes because we'll now have a Democratic president and Republicans having control of the of the House. But again, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical that that the what we've seen in the past will play out at this moment, just because it does seem like uh, both sides have uh, have moved to a different place. Yeah, I keep waiting for Tea Party 2.0 to come along uh, for the fiscal conservatives to once again wrest control of uh, of either of the major parties. To be honest, I'd be happy with either one of them, but I'm not holding my breath on that front at the moment. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Hope, hope springs eternal. That is unfortunately all the time we have for today. Uh, that is Jonathan Bidlack, director of the governance program at the R Street Institute. Check out his work online at rstreet.org. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks again.
And you can also check out John's latest piece at Reason.com. Biden's spending spree is unprecedented. That's the headline there. While you're there, click around a little bit, check out everything else we're covering. And uh, hey, this week is also our annual webathon. So we're raising money to, you know, keep the lights on and keep producing good content. And if you feel so inclined, you can support us with a little donation there as well. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Over the past century, presidential nominees have historically been elected with over 50 percent of the vote. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College runs down the numbers on this American Radio Journal commentary. Donald Trump boosters often tell me that no Republican presidential nominee could today get 50 percent of the vote. It's a claim that frankly baffles me. I ask them, really? Why not? George W. Bush did it in 2004. His father did it in 1988. Ronald Reagan did it twice. In fact, let's do a deep dive into recent history. In 1972, Republican Richard Nixon won 49 of 50 states and the Electoral College 520 to 17. He trounced George McGovern by 18 million votes. Nixon, ladies and gentlemen, got nearly 61 percent of the popular vote. Yes, think about that. In 1980, Republican Ronald Reagan defeated the incumbent Jimmy Carter 51 to 41 percent in a three-man race. In a stunning rebuke, the sitting president was crushed in the Electoral College by Reagan 489 to 49. In 1984, Reagan, like Nixon in 1972, won almost 60 percent of the vote. But even more impressive, Reagan took 49 to 50 states in the Electoral College 525 to 13. He lost only Minnesota, his challenger Walter Mondale's home state. He beat Mondale by almost 17 million votes. Ronald Reagan in 1980 and 84 twice won New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, and even Massachusetts. Republican candidates for president have gotten over 50% of the vote more often than recent Democrat nominees have. Until Joe Biden in 2020, pretty much the only Democratic presidential nominee to get over 50 percent of the vote since LBJ in 1964 was Barack Obama, though Jimmy Carter got 50.08 percent in 1976, so he barely made it. But here's an even more striking figure. From 1920 to 2020, there have been 26 presidential elections. The winner got over 50 percent of the vote in 19 of them. In three others, the winner got 49%. And by the way, one of them was 49.5, and the other one was 49.72%. So that's a lot of data I'm giving you. But in short, the absolute norm is to get nearly or over 50% of the vote. Over that 100-year period, 1920 to 2020, the lowest percentages by a winner was Donald Trump's 46% in 2016, Bill Clinton's 43 in 1992, and Nixon's 43 in 1968, though the latter two, Clinton and Nixon, were in three-man races and got more popular votes than their opponents. Trump was the only one of the three to win the presidency while losing the popular vote. Trump's case was the rarest exception. Of course, Republicans have also won over 50 percent of the seats in Congress several times since Newt Gingrich's big win in 1994. In fact, they won the House again this November 2022. And in the November 22 congressional elections, they got over 50 percent of all votes. And so 
The problem for Republicans isn't that 50 percent of the vote is unattainable by a Republican nominee. The problem for Republicans is that 50 percent is unattainable by Donald Trump as the Republican nominee. Trump's current real clear politics favorable versus unfavorable rating is 40 percent to 54, which is typical for him. And it's obviously dismal. In some, it is Donald Trump who can't win 50 percent of the vote. Now, Trump's staunchest supporters hate it when this is pointed out, and I don't mean to dump on the guy. I really don't. But it's simply the reality. Donald Trump is divisive even within his own party, and the population at large loathes him. Well over 50% of the population despise him with an extraordinary vehemence, a red-hot hatred. So fair or unfair, deserved or not, the problem for Donald Trump is that the dislike for him so long ago escalated to the point of seething rage among a massive segment of the population that it's made him unable to get 50%. And what that means is that Donald Trump in a general election turns out people on the other side. He drives voters sprinting to the voting booth to cast ballots against him and his party. Trump supporters, again, they'll protest that the hatred of him is not entirely his fault, and that he was demonized by the partisan Democrat media and more. I get it. But reality is reality. And it's an obvious recipe for Donald Trump in 2024, once again, to get less popular votes than his opponent, even Joe Biden. In other words, a recipe again for a Democrat victory. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WWON-FM in Waynesboro, Tennessee, WBUQ-FM in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, along with KCIL-FM in Huma, Louisiana. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.